0: Thank you very much, Bishus, Damir Dasra, Mero cherished colleagues. And I want to thank also, of course, uh, Mr. Steve Rosedale for his generosity and his friendship and knowing how to make things happen. Uh, The Rav legitimately is very, very proud of his Kahila and how polite they are and such good listeners. And he told me I can go for three hours, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go for two hours, though. I read a book three years ago about the capture of Eichmann in Buenos Aires. And it was a very large team that the Mossad sent. It was uh, safe houses and hitmen, and it was a doctor, and it was the LL staff and ground crew. And every single member of the team was a Holocaust survivor. And this was not done to give them. Incentive. But the situation there was that if you were not a Sephardic ancestry, basically you were a Holocaust survivor. And if you're not familiar, and that's the reason why we have making this program, the Rabbanut established a Sarbatebez as a Yom Kaddish HaKlali to make a day for those who were unaware of when their relatives had perished to make one day to say Kaddish. And it's not uncommon to find in a Besakhayim or on plaques. In memoriam, and the arts they write are Sarbateves, because they don't know. I work in Yad Vashem, and some of you who've been there, you've noticed they have a uh, children's memorial. And thanks to the genius of the architect, it's as black as black can be. And there's a flicker of what appear to be millions of candles to commemorate one and a half million children under the age of 12 who have perished at the hands of the Nazis. And you hear a tape in Yiddish, English, and Hebrew until you want to run out of names of those who perished. As Rabbi Berewine pointed out, the one name you do not hear is your own name. And again, if you're not of a Sephardic ancestry, it's only through a miracle. Our grandparents, our great-grandparents, that we are here today. And no one thinks for a moment that those who survived were pious than those who perished. And I think about this all the time. Moshe Rabbeinu had many beautiful names Avigdor, Tuvia, Yedidya, and yet and yet he's always referred to as Moshe, mayim mishisuhu. He was drawn forth from the water. He always had that visage before his eyes. He could have been alligator fodder at the bottom of the river. And that's something to realize that if we're here to make something productive of our lives, we could have been otherwise. So to try and make this personal, when I was a kid... I'm 27, but when I was younger, it was very common to see numbers, numbers engraved on flesh. I wonder how many my children have seen, if my grandchildren have seen any at all. In this regard, I wish to relate three stories. In my neighborhood, Nishalayim, it's a pretty devout neighborhood, Every Yom Kippur is the most crowded day in the Men Mikvah, SRO, squeeze room only. And it's so boisterous and noisy, it's all chasidim yerushalmi, wishing ketyantov ketyar. And one year, there was one kid from across the street from the Orsamech yeshiva for beginners. How do I know it's from Orsamech? He said on his t shirt, Orsamech wrestling. I'm just joking. He had an earring and a ponytail. Clearly, he was not a chasin yerushalmi, and he felt legitimately very much out of place in the mikvah. placed his palms over his biceps, very apparent to me and to others. They had a tattoo that was not appropriate for Erev Yom Kippur. I dare say not appropriate for Gashur Freilich, but certainly not the Eve of Yom Kippur. And the people in this mikveh are not especially subtle, about as subtle as heavy metal is subtle. And they're gawking and getting this poor kid who's highly embarrassed, about to step into the pool and then slips and trips and grabs the rail. And there's this roaring silence in the mikveh. Sphinx like silence. Picture of forest after a tree is felled. Imagine the Mudville Statement from Mighty Casey struck out. No one is moving. Before, it was so boisterous, and now it's as if we went deaf. And these Ludo tattoos were flying through the air in a show like, I cannot period describe to you these tattoos. It was not anchors. In my life, I have never, ever witnessed such embarrassment. He turned alabaster. I saw him cogitating, he'll jump in, he'll never come out. No one was moving. And then elderly neighbor of mine, this happened 21 years ago, walked across the moist marble floor. And I can still hear in my ears the thwack, thwack, thwack as he walked across the moist marble floor and said to this boy who's more dead than alive, and he said to him in this heavily yiddish European accent in English, don't really, young man. I also have a tattoo Pointed numbers going up his flesh, in other words, I went through my gehenim and you went through your gehenim. Let's begin Yom Kippur together. Spontaneous, everyone over wished him a good and a shana tova. And I saw how one small thing can make all the difference in the world. Nextly, I have a friend. Well, actually, I have a friend who has a friend. I don't even know him, but he's my friend's friend, who is a psychiatrist in Manhattan. And he grew up in Washington Heights in the 50s. And in Washington Heights, you see a lot of numbers, especially in the summer, they would vacation the Rockaways. So much so that when he was nine years old, he asked his mother, when will I get my number? Which caused her to run out of the kitchen crying. And this fellow, this psychiatrist, his uncle was a physician in the Catskill Mountains. His wife was his receptionist. One day she called him up she said, <coughs> On Sunday, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein is coming to the clinic. Would you like to meet him? What kid who grew up in Washington Heights in the 50s wouldn't give his right arm to meet Rabbi Moshe? And he scrubbed his face put on his yanta finery. He's sitting in the waiting room, looking as religious as he possibly can. Hajah, hajah, And it gets fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. And finally, finally, Rabbi Moshe and his entourage Walk in, his aunt goes over and she says, Rabbi finds I'm very sorry, but we're very full. You're gonna to have to wait your turn. And she plants a kiss on both of his cheeks. <coughs> and this fellow, this boy, melts into the floorboards. When he's finally able to emerge, he crawls over and is halting Yiddish, querulous Yiddish. He says, Zidetafuhma. I'm so sorry, but my aunt, she doesn't know any better. She's not religious. Her relationship said, shh, she's holier than I. She has the numbers. And lastly, they asked the Saint Meruv, the Saint Merebbe, what's going to be when you're not around? Who shall we go to for a bracha? (coughs) He said, go to Shul. See men putting on their tefillin, see numbers on their arm. That's their affidavit to get the Shemayim. So what I want to talk about is American Jewry had a very uh, unfortunate role during the Holocaust. I mean, I say this to great credit of Laser Silver, one of the great, one of the shining lights in this very dark period. And I'll get to a story about this momentarily. There was a lot that could have been done and by, by and large, nothing was done. We'll start with the story of the St. Louis. The way the mind operates, what is the most famous story of the Holocaust? It's not a hard question. The most famous story is Anne Frank. But Anne's story is not a reflective story. She was not in the ghettos, wasn't in the camps. She had a roof over her head, a modicum of food. But because it's a story, it's easier to relate and that's the way the mind works it's easier to relate to one girl than 6 million souls it's easier to relate to 6 million paper clips or paper clips than 6 million souls when the anschluss occurred in austria the cabinet the american cabinet was concerned about the plight and suffering of one austrian jew and that was sigmund freud And the way the mind works, which is kind of funny to say about Freud, it's easier to think about one than 180,000. It's easier to think about the doomed ship to St. Louis when there were many, many doomed ships. And the St. Louis set sail, obviously they were the most wealthy of German Jews. This was after Kristallnacht. They could still afford passage in the landing papers to get into Cuba. All of them had... 937, 736 had legitimate visas to go to America, but they'd only be valid in three months' time. But all of them had proper paperwork, kosher paperwork, to get to Cuba. When the boat was docked in Havana, and you look up and see the passengers, at that point the Cubans demanded a bribe. Now in Latin America, Central America, South America, bribe is a way of life. I'll bet you... One of, the first words you learn, one of the first words you learn in Spanish is el bribo. So if they want a bribe, what should you do? Let's try this again. 937 passengers, their life is on the line. They need a bribe. The answer is, of course, give the bribe. As they say in Staples, that's simple. But the leader of American jury, his name was Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, Stephen, F. Stephen S. Wise, whom we used to call Haggai Hagadol Hazeh. He was the quintessential reform rabbi, stage president, oratorical beliefs, cushy cushy with FDR, Eleanor, members of the cabinet. A bribe? A bribe's against the law. You can't violate the law. When finally action was, was activated to do something, it was too late. The captain of the ship, Gustav Schroeder, a benevolent, magnanimous humanitarian, a German, wanted to save his passengers. He figured America is a humane country. 736 have American visas. He sailed the ship up and down the eastern seaboard. And how did America react? With a Coast Guard gutter to intercept. Had they somehow jumped off and swam the 20 miles to Miami, had this been doable, they would have been sent back. Ultimately, the only country which would take them, they had to go back to where they came from. And many perished in the Holocaust which raises the question, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. what could have been done? I don't know if you're familiar with the Moussi negotiations, and if you're not, that means you didn't read enough teller books. At the end of the war, there were somewhere between 600,000 and 800,000 Jews still alive in the camps. Jean-Marie Moussi, the former Swiss president, was a Nazi sympathizer, a chum of Himmler, Himmler was an extremely dangerous person, the head of the police, the SS, the Gestapo. He was a top cop. He's much more practical than Hitler. He wanted to save his neck, and he negotiates. Sir Baron Cutler in America negotiates with the Sternbach family in Switzerland, who negotiates with Musi, who negotiates with Himmler. And at first he demands trucks and medications, which the Vod Hatzala, the not to be confused with the ambulance corps, cannot come up with. He then changes his demand to five million Swiss francs, the equivalent of about one million U.S. dollars, and the VAD itself doesn't have a million. And Rabarin Cutler, the head of the VAD, goes to the Joint Distribution Company, which does have a million. Now Rabaran is the quintessential Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva, short, long black coat, stooped, holding svarim, Looking at him, he looks arcane. Looking at him, you cannot tell how clever he is. He does not converse in English, he speaks Yiddish. And Irving Bunum, the head of young Israel, is his translator. The got for the joint, he said, we need $1 million. We can't do it. We can't do it because it violates the British blockade, which is sacrosanct. And we can't do it because it's after Pearl Harbor and it means trading with the enemy, which is a felonious crime. And for all I know, it's a treasonous crime but to the Gedolom of America, and the Gedolom are, of Aaron Cutler, of Laser Silver, of Rom Komenovitch, of and important Baal Irving Bunum, Mike Louis Septimus, Stephen S. Klein. They are guided not by money, but guided by Pekosh Nefesh, saving a life, and begin to rescue a captive, and Loh Samuel, don't stand by your brother's blood, and our responsibility, one Jew towards his brother. And he begs for a million dollars. He said, we can't do it. And he begs and pleads and cajoles and wheedles. And finally, he says, okay, <clears throat> I'll give you the money provided you get a license from the American government and can give one million dollars to the Nazi enemy. There's only one person in all of America who authorized to give this money. And that was the president named after the highway in Manhattan. You know, in the 1930s, you say... To a Jew who's a leader, they would respond in Yiddish, the Drei Weltin. There's three worlds. The word for world in Yiddish is Welt, the Drei Der Welt, and Roosevelt. In the same breath as Olam haba. So, So, Rabbianka, with a raging fever, travels to Washington with Irving Bunum. They go to the White House, and apparently, FDR felt that the plight of 800,000 Jews was not important enough for his time. He sends him to his hyper assimilated Secretary of the Treasury. Henry Morgenthau, Jr. And you can imagine being in a secretary in FDR's cabinet being an extremely assimilated Jew, which he was. He celebrated Easter, and Christmas, he and his wife. But inside there was something which, something ticked that was very, very Jewish. And there's no way he's going to comply. There's no way he's going to give $1 million of taxpayer money to the Nazi enemy. And once again, Reviron begs and pleads and cajoles, and he will not give in. <coughs> in desperation... Ovarin instructs Bunim, tell him, you are worthless, and Washington is meaningless if you can't save the life of one child in Europe. There is no way that Irving Bunham is going to tell the Secretary of the Treasury in the White House, you are worthless, and Washington is meaningless. He gives him a toast version, the rabbi's very disappointed. We hope in the future you can be of greater help. Now, Ovarin doesn't understand English, but he was, as I like to joke, an observant Jew, he sees from Henry Morgenthau Jr.'s expression of what he had said, and that then accurately translates, a Tell him precisely what I told you. At that point, Irving Bunim, not about to violate the dictates of the Gadolador, looks down at his shoelaces to see if his, socks are, sees if his shoes are tied and his socks are pulled up, and other matters of sartorial concern. He says in a barely audible voice, Mr. Secretary, the rabbis asked me to inform you that you are worthless, and Washington is meaningless. You can't save the life of one child in Europe. <coughs> <coughs> At that point, Henry Morgan High, Jr. collapses on the table like this for what appears to be an eternity. When he finally raises his head, his eyes are deltas of red, their tears cascading down his cheeks, and tell the rabbi, I've not forgotten who I am. I'll put my neck on the choppy block to save my brethren. What would have been the greatest rescue effort in the history of history? was scuttled by American jury and Swiss jury, and Hitler himself intervened to make sure it wouldn't happen. But Henry Morgenthau Jr. will go down in history as the one who's willing to risk his career on behalf of his brethren. Perhaps a better-known story is that of Oscar Schindler. Schindler was a very problematic individual. He was a womanizer, a dishonest businessman, a loan shark, a boozer, and the list goes on. But at that critical time, he saved nearly twelve hundred Jews, and forever after, his name has become synonymous with heroism, bravery, courage, self-sacrifice. Synonymous, like Vaseline means petroleum jelly, and Kleenex means Kleenex means tissues, and Q-tips means cotton swabs. Schindler means self-sacrifice. He changed his name, and the take-home message is: in life, we have to make decisions. You make the convenient one; that's the way you'll be forgotten you make the difficult one, that's the way you'll be remembered. Gosh, I don't want to be remembered for going late. Uh, So let me just uh, segue to one, one final thing. As everyone knows, the Holocaust is the most documented crime in the history of history. But there was one thing I discovered that was not written about. When the war was over, Everybody wanted to tell the story and how they had suffered and how they'd been betrayed. But the people who did not tell the story, nor could they tell the story, were the children. I took it upon myself to tell the story of the children I traveled around the world. And it wasn't easy gathering the stories because obviously most everyone wanted to forget what had happened. When finally became sheik to relate the stories, the minds had played tricks and had to make sure it was accurate. In the end, we assembled stories of nine children, which is a unique perspective, uh, looking at the Holocaust from their perspective. And we worked on this book for 16 years, and then we made a very draconian deadline, and we completed it, and we're about to go to press. <laughs> and one little mistake was that we didn't yet have a cover. A cover is a very important component to a book. I always say, who sa- whoever says they don't judge a book by its cover, I know they never tried to sell a book. So we had to get a cover very, very quickly. I put my team on it. That means my kids. And they're going through all the archives. We came across this picture. I hope you can see in the back. I think it's a very dramatic picture. It's a picture that was shot the day that Auschwitz was liberated. It's a picture of many, many, many children. This is zoomed in. And the copyright holder is the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. And to use a picture, you have to fill out an affidavit and you have to commit you're not gonna make any changes or Zoom or any alterations. And I said, I'm gonna make this change and this change and that change and this change and that change. And the next day, I had permission. However, they gave it to me in low res, and they said in three weeks I'll get it in high res. But everyone knows the turn from low res to high res takes 10 seconds, not three weeks. But it's a large bureaucracy, over 300 employees, and you'll pardon me for being an Israeli, so I figured what's indicated here is protexia. Now, I have a friend, a very powerful individual, lives in Baltimore. They say that in his cell phone he has every senator and congressman's private number. And I figured Baltimore, Washington, surely, surely, he must have an inn in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And his son was learning yeshiva next door to my house. So I ran to the yeshiva and said, Are What I thought was that rhetorical question said, Aryeh, is your father connected to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum? And he said, no. Disenchanted, crestfallen, melancholy. I walk out of the room. I'm about to cross the threshold, and he tells me, but my mother is on the board. (laughs) He's gonna wring his neck. His mother's a judge, Chaya Friedman. I write her, Chaya, I desperately need your assistance. I need to get this picture. I gave her the lot number, the call number, the locator number. I needed high res. The next day, I had the picture. Then I thought, in sync with what I told you earlier, I condu- I'm a docent in Yad Vashem. And the way I conduct my tours, there- in Yad Vashem, anytime, there are dozens of tours. And I can't get over that these tour guides are unspooling down at the head, cannot absorb. It's just too much information. So I'm always telling stories so we can better connect. And that way, I relate the information. So what I wanted to do in sync with my methodology was to highlight one child and to color one. The picture is sepia, to make it look the way he looked. But this, I definitely need permission. So once again, I said, Chaya, I need your help. I need to color it. And she says, I'm very, very busy. I'm convening a murder trial. I said, Chaya, this is killing me. And I prevailed upon her. And she writes me back, I made the request, but yay, yay, nay, nay. I cannot assure you they're going to give permission. And I am think to myself, come on, this is the Holocaust. It's apple pie, it's mom, who's going to say no? And I had, I'll use the technical term, I had a press queue at 10 o'clock in three nights. A press queue means, this is the largest press in Israel, arguably the largest press in the Middle East. And when you have a press queue, if you don't show up, you still pay for it. And then you get on cue all over again, and you don't get the print the next day. You have to wait until your turn comes up. So I press cue. And then three hours for press cue, to be accurate, two hours and 48 minutes, I get an email from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's head archivist. Dear Rabbi Teller, we regret to inform you, you may not use the picture. If you wish to use the picture in its pristine state without any alterations and no zooming and certainly no color- colorization, you may. But once you make the slightest change, you do not have our permission. And our legal department said unequivocally, this boy spoke out. He's very sensitive. You may not do anything to change his picture. Shrek and a half. I already had the plates burned. They were on the drums. In two hours and 14 minutes, I'm going to have 10,000 covers. But I'm not such a pushover, a bit of a fighter. And I write her back an email and said, please, give me his, give me his phone number. And where he lives, I'd like to speak with him. One hour and 26 minutes to press queue, she writes me back, I don't know his name, and we don't know where he lives. I said, but he just told me, he sensed if he spoke out. 42 minutes for press queue, she sends me an online clipping. On the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the people in this picture went out back to Auschwitz, and they pointed themselves, obviously, in the grips of old age, went back and pointed themselves as youngsters, It was apparent from this article, we'll say yeshivish, it was mashup from this article that this boy's name is Hirsch, and and if it was Hirsch, he lives in Europe. And I now have 17 minutes to find Hirsch in Europe. So Sherlock Teller is thinking, where will I find him? Now if you look at the picture, the kid looks pretty good. So I know he couldn't be a Pole. Pole couldn't look this good. He'd have to be Hungarian. Hungary was invaded March 1944. To look like this, you'd have to be Hungarian. So Sherlock Teller is thinking, where would a Hungarian survivor of Auschwitz live in Europe today? I discounted England and Russia. Not bad. I only have 29 countries to go. And we're down to 11 minutes. And I concluded you'd have to live either in Belgium or Switzerland. And I have a friend who lives in Zurich who works for IBM. What a shidduch. So I called my friend Moshe Luzer. I said, I need you to find me Hirsch in Switzerland. He said, would that be his first name or his last name? He said, I don't know. He said, is he from? I don't know. He said, Hanoch, what have you been drinking? I'm not drinking anything. I got eight minutes. I got to find this guy. It's really, really pressing. He said to me, you know, I have IBM at my fingertips. You tell me his name, I'll get him. I said, you know what? I'm sure he's Hungarian. Try Gavor or Tivor Hirsch. That's Hungarian for Mike or Steve. I hear him clicking, he tells me, Gabor Hirsch, 89-year-old engineer, here's his phone number. I called him up, my Deutsch. He gave me permission, I raced off an email to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I said, I have permission. And if you don't believe me, here's his phone number, but it's nine o'clock in Switzerland. The elderly gentleman, I wouldn't call him now. And I took that as an omen for this book, which Baruch Hashem has made an impact. Okay, our time has lapsed. I just want to tell you that when you walk out, I have a table with some books and uh, books, and maybe some CDs. I think you'll find them enriching. I know I will. And uh, since uh, I can't carry them with me, uh, we're discounting everything, and if you buy two, the third one is free. You buy four, two are free. You buy six, I pay you. Okay, and if this one I run out of, which are much I, I can send them to you from New York uh, on Thursday. Thank you. <laughs>